0: hi there i'm danny henderson welcome back to my beautiful channel my guest today i can't tell you it's taken months to get him on screen with me i'm so excited to meet him like this to share him with you but also because he will be a speaker at the galactic and spiritual informers connection which is only three weeks away orlando florida he will be the only speaker we have on zoom but trust me he is such a blessing to this great second year event jerry wills welcome sir
1: Thank you, Danny. Thank you for having me on. It is a privilege to be here with you today.
0: I'm so delighted. There's so much to say about you, but what I would love to start with is the fact that you were born elsewhere. You were not born on this planet. May we go into your first memories and what you were told?
1: Certainly. Uh, Before we begin, I want to let your audience know that uh, i have had a dental procedure done so i have a tooth missing here there's an implant that will be completed in december so if you notice that folks it's not that i'm unconscious of it (laughs) um all right the first memories that i have they are being in some sort of an aerial vehicle and I am aware that I'm flying away from some place, going over trees and oceans, lakes. I don't know what they were. I mean, it was not all that. I was really just a baby. It's remarkable I even remember such a thing. But <clears throat> I remember seeing two moons. And then I um, I slept. I suppose. I'm not aware of anything until later when I'm once again aware that I'm flying over uh, trees and hills and forests.
2: And there's a woman holding me. She's holding me in her arms.
1: And she's singing to me. And it's Not like anything I've ever heard before on this world. Doesn't match any memories at all. And I looked up into her face. I remember that very clearly. I also remember looking off to my, you know, which would be mostly in front of me. I was being held with her right arm. And there was a man, I presume he was my father. And he was sitting there at some... Panel, lights on it. Don't know what it was. And
2: looking out through the window in the front,
1: uh, there were just, like I said, trees. And it was night. Then the next memory is going to a place where it was a desert. And I was flying over. It was daytime now. And I'm flying over this desert and I see my, I guess my mother was showing me the window and I was looking outside and it was above, not terrifically high, but there were
2: what I would now call old cars on the highway, flew past the highway on into the desert. It was remarkably bright.
1: And there was a a lot of buildings that were totally unfamiliar to me. Now I know there would be like a military base, but at the time I had no idea what I was looking at, of course. And it was during this time that we came closer and closer to the earth. And then I don't remember. Uh, I know we stopped moving because I could see the ground and nothing around me was moving. And then the next fragment of memory is being held by my mother, and there were these men that looked no different, really, than, you know, my mother, my father, and people that I guess I was familiar with, you know, at some point. But they just looked different, they were dressed differently. And there were conversations going on. I don't know what the conversations were. My language skills weren't really intact. And there were a few, three or four of these men. Um, Three of them were dressed, what I would now know as military uniforms, and the fourth man was dressed in a suit suit. He was an older man, Um, stern-looking. He looked down at me and put his finger across my cheek and came in close. The other three men gazed at me a little bit differently and from a little bit different distance. And he smiled and stepped back.
2: That fragment's over. Then... The next thing i remember is flying over trees again and then i that fragment is over it's nighttime and the next thing i remember is i am cold and alone
1: and i wasn't afraid i don't think i really had developed a sense of fear but i was terrifically uncomfortable
2: And it was cold, and getting colder. And the next thing I remember would be men rushing towards me, all concerned, it seemed, yelling.
1: What I now know is the sound of a helicopter. I guess it was a helicopter. It was was something that was making loud noises. I, I didn't see a helicopter. I couldn't tell you for sure. And the next memory fragment is being, and I don't know how much longer it was, but I was in a place with a lot of bright lights, and I was warm.
2: I wasn't hungry. I had been hungry.
1: And women who were coming in to check on me and smiling and saying things, politely to me,
2: lovingly, I suppose.
1: And that memory fragment is gone after that. Then I remember being older, and I have this man
2: who is, I guess, now my father. And there's this woman who I guess now is my mother. And, you know, various, um, you know, being stuck by a pen from a diaper that hurt. Um, Eating food that I didn't particularly care for. Not all the time, of course, but there were those moments. And um, then I remember being a little older.
1: I was about five years old, and the man who was now my father smoked a cigar.
2: he smelled like smoke. He was,
1: uh, he, was he was a very kind and loving person towards me. But he and the woman argued frequently because of some reason. I now know it was because he was drinking.
2: And one day I was playing in the kitchen and
1: swinging my arms around, you know, like kids do. Just sort of swiveling at the waist. Your arms are out to the sides, around the And, around. and <clears throat> totally unaware that behind me my father was walking towards me and I just spontaneously erupted into swinging my arms again. And when I did, uh, apparently he was working on cleaning a
2: fish and this knife that he was holding went directly through this hat here to the backside and was out this side. And I remember very clearly looking at that and thinking, oh, and I pulled my hand away.
1: And of course, the mother and the father were very traumatized by this. I wasn't, and he threw the knife at the sink,
2: lifted me up,
1: got down on his knees, set me down. The mother comes, they're examining my hand, And there's nothing there.
2: And they can't understand. Because they saw it very clearly. And they can't understand why there was nothing there. And then I remember I became injured. This is
1: probably a year later. I had um, jumped off a counter crawled up onto it, It's something, who knows what, came down off the counter, and I caught the um, edge of the door near the inside of my, between my legs, and apparently punctured and ripped something quite dramatically
2: there. I don't remember what happened after that. But I do remember the next scene was
1: I was in bed and there were these men who would show up uh, every week. Some were doctors and uh, others had all kinds of, well, they were dressed in military uniforms and had all kinds of insignias on on their breast. And they were very keen on knowing what was going on with me. I guess I'd already been to the hospital and had returned home. And they were all surprised, apparently, that I was just fine. I was healing very rapidly.
2: When I was about somewhere in the mix of all this, probably, you know, five
1: or six years old, my father would always tell me that I was going to In my future, I would be going to the Air Force Academy. It was a new thing, Colorado Springs. We lived in Denver. It moved from Kentucky to Denver. And that um, the people who were there were very excited to have me there as their student. So I had to be very, very good at everything. You know, I was a very smart kid. I was reading by the time I was three. Um, so I had a lot of books and I could, in my own primitive way, I could discuss geology and science and planets and stars and chemistry and biology. All these books were always furnished to me.
2: So there was a
1: time that when he took me to this meeting. It was in a building somewhere in Denver. I don't know where. Now I understand it was a Masonic order, but at the time I had no idea. We went into a side door, went into an elevator, and I was dressed in a jacket and a tie in a suit, basically,
2: and as he was as well
1: and we went down the elevator and into this one large large room i was taken to a smaller room and required to change into a uh, a silvery outfit and it fit me quite well Uh, now i would consider it would be like a lycra bodysuit but at the time no such thing existed And I had these words that I was required to read. So once I was in this suit, and my hair was always kept very short. So once I read this over and read it out loud to my father, the time was, and these men came and escorted me to the center of a stage with a microphone. Those sat down rather low. And I had the paper. And I read these words. I have no idea what they were. I don't have any idea what was said. And the place was absolutely silent except for the sound of my voice. The audience, there was no light. But it was a large room. It
2: was full of people. And when I finished... I dropped the paper and I thanked them for
1: attending. And at that point, they all stood up and cheered and clapped and cheered and clapped. And it I remember smiling. And then this man with the military outfit came out from the side where my father was. He shook my hand. My father stood by my side, and every one of these people that were there, at least it seemed like it in my memory, they filed by me, got down on a knee to be at my height,
2: they shook my hand, rubbed my head, patted me on the shoulder or the back, and one by
1: one they filed past. And when it was over, went back into that small room and changed back into my suit, And took the elevator and went home. The entire thing lasted about three hours. I was tired. So my father took me for pancakes
2: and then home,
1: where my mother had made a chocolate cake. And later there'd be dinner, and I would have chocolate cake and a glass of milk before I went to bed. There were other instances as well that I <clears throat> find it difficult to put a timeline to. <clears throat> For example, every year from my first memories, which is probably around three years old, my father and mother would then go on a car journey to from Denver to Florida. And it was a long journey long journey so you know i don't remember much about the journey except it was it took a long time and once we were in florida we stayed at this hotel that was near the beach
2: and usually
1: after the second or third day this man would show up that my father told me was my uncle sam He had a big, big black car. Now I suspect it was like a Lincoln Continental or some Cadillac or something, but it was really big because the back seat was just huge. And I remember thinking, I wish we had a car like this with such a big back seat. Well,
2: we drove out quite a ways.
1: Now I realize it was probably into the Florida Everglades. Then uh, eventually, Uncle Sam would get to the point where he'd park and
2: get out of the car. He had a canteen. There were two. And
1: my father uh, had one and Uncle Sam had the other. We walked a short distance to where there was like a river. Or a creek. I don't know. It wasn't gigantic at all. You know, it was probably 20, 30 foot across
2: at the most uh, from my memories. It might not have even been that big. But there was a boat there,
1: and the boat had a, a motor. And I got into the boat. And my father sat in the front, I sat in the middle, and my Uncle Sam sat in the back and drove the boat. We went down this creek into the trees.
2: We went through these trees. And eventually we got to a place
1: where it was just a wall of vines, trees. And the water just ended at this,
2: this place. And my father would whistle.
1: And there would be suddenly off to the left side, there there would be a man. And he was all covered in these vines and trees and limbs and... Face was painted.
2: He looked like a jungle person, I guess. I used to watch Tarzan. (laughs) And... uh, Then my Uncle Sam
1: would say something. He'd say his name or something like that. I don't remember what he said, really. I just know he said something. And the fellow there was, yes, sir, yes, sir. And then another man was on the right side, and the two of them would grab this, this big vine and start pulling on it. And this, this, this wall of vines and greenery, it just pulled up. It just folded right back. And Uncle Sam started the motor, and we went on through. And when I looked back, it was closing back again. Well, this was fascinating. I thought I was on a grand adventure every time it happened, and I always looked forward to it. And we always went to the same place. This had happened many times. So in this place we ended up at was a bit of a clearing. There were these tents, not really tents like you'd think, but buildings that had four walls and a pitched roof. But they weren't made of wood. They were made of material.
2: Now I would say they were like canvas. And these men uh, would come up and... uh, Every
1: time this one particular man was there, and he knew my name, he called me Jerry, and he always gave me a stick of juicy fruit gum. (laughs) And my dad said it was all right.
2: I ate it. I chewed it up. And as I'm chewing it up,
1: these other men, I guess they were men, I couldn't really tell, they were wearing these large white outfits their head was covered it was like a hazmat suit now but at the time i didn't have any frame of reference for what i was looking at but they were in big white outfits they came up and they took my hand and while i'm chewing the gum they led me towards building by the time i got to the building i was asleep i suppose because i don't remember anything
2: all I remember past that point, I was waking up in this hotel room.
1: My mom was asking if I had a great adventure with my Uncle Sam. It was morning, and my dad would want to know if I wanted to go have pancakes.
2: So got dressed, had
1: pancakes, and later went out to the ocean and the long trip back home. This happened every year for several years.
2: Until one morning, my father died. And when that happened, of course, was traumatic. Mm-hmm. I was there. He was on the floor. My mother was screaming for help. And he wasn't awake,
1: and I put my hand on his chest. I guess just instinctively, because he had just come out of the shower with the towel around him. And I could I, I, I didn't feel he was there. It was very odd. And I pulled my hand away, and I was—I'd never encountered such a thing. Eventually, ambulance showed up. They took him to a medical center. Uh, he was a veteran, and two days after all this had happened, no, the very next day actually. Next day, there was a phone call. He always called my mother, um, like. 8 o'clock in the morning, I think. He had a government job. And the phone rang at 8 o'clock, just as usual. I was excited. It's my dad. And she picked up the phone, and I could hear his voice. And he was saying, I need to to talk to Jerry. I need to talk to Jerry. And she said, "This, this isn't you, Ace. You're dead. This couldn't possibly be you. He says, I'm not dead.
2: She says, yes, you are. Boom, hung it up.
1: And she was really freaked out. And I was I went away to the other room to cry, and I'm sitting there by the phone thinking, maybe he will call back. I'll answer this time. Never did.
2: The next day, these men who had been part of my life in the uniforms there were three of them they were accompanied by regular soldiers and they were also accompanied by these men in black suits and they
1: came into the house it wasn't like they were invited in they just came in. But of course, she didn't lock the doors or anything. They just came in. And they told my mother that they were there
2: to take me away. That I was their property. That I belonged to
1: the government. And she said, no. And she says, I have a birth certificate. This is my son. You're not taking him anywhere. And she became more and more i guess i freaked out about the whole thing screaming at them and they they said this isn't over i remember that very clearly because i was afraid they weren't like this ever
2: before they left and immediately well not immediately but by the end of the day we had left and gone to stay with her brother and then from there I don't know how it all worked out, but we left there and drove back to Kentucky where she was from. And back in the hills of Kentucky. And I never got another visit from these people. Although later in years, I had people approach me. But
1: nothing overt. neither any any, th- any threatening not until it really wasn't threatening I'm going on to the next thing here, but it, uh, this even this wasn't threatening at all but um I don't remember the date now, but it was in October, and um it was October late october, and it was it was getting cold. I was outside, my mother had remarried a fellow who was Incredibly cruel, a very unpleasant
2: fellow. And
1: I was outside stacking up a terrific amount of wood that had been split, stacking it into a nice, tidy
2: wall. Sun was going down.
1: There was a breeze coming off from my left. The moon was full. And I heard an odd sound. Having lived on the farm now for a number of years, I knew the sounds. This wasn't anything I'd ever heard before. I look around, didn't see anything. I continued stacking the wood. My hands were freezing. Side note, the reason why I'm so prone to being uh, uncomfortable with the cold Is because when the US Army Air Corps retrieved me from that house, I had frostbite over most of my body. So I have a great sensitivity to the cold, always have. So my fingers are aching and stinging, and I'm still trying to pile these things up. And then they're not much more than, I don't know,
2: 300 yards away, about 1,200 feet over the pine trees they were tall the tall kind of pine trees not the short bushy ones there was this thing
1: it was like a huge oval silver and there were round lights on it and these lights were pastel and they would go there were five of them and it would go from left to right, slowly fading. The next one slowly fade on. And next, then the next. <clears throat> kind of a pastel, yellowish, pink looking,
2: fading down to a, a very opaque white.
1: But it's just hanging there over the trees. It actually it moved. I saw it move over the trees and stop. It was just hanging there. and There was a pretty good breeze coming from my left, so it was going against the wind.
2: There was a clear field in front of me, and I thought I should run over there. I felt like that was the thing to do.
1: I stood there watching it, and I walked away from the wood, and I went over to where the fence was, because there was a fence between me and It's just a barbed wire fence easy to get through. And I stared at this. I saw the moon glinting off of it. That's why I knew it was, you know, highly polished, silverish. And I said, I'm coming to you. I said, wait for me. I'm coming to you. Very clearly
2: in my mind, it said, not yet. And then it just moved and went out of sight. We lived on top of the hill (coughs) excuse me and it just went I guess over the over the horizon of the hill so
1: no one believed me that I'd seen this of course no one believed me about anything that I was seeing anyway I was seeing dead people I could touch something and know what was
2: going on with it I could see inside of a watch I could do some pretty interesting things And no one believed me. And
1: it wouldn't be until the next year <clears throat> after I turned. Well, I guess maybe by then I had turned thirteen because I was. I just turned twelve to thirteen when this happened. And at thirteen, I was on a hike down in the woods, waiting for a friend of mine to show up. Way back, woods, and that's when I met Zoe.
2: And this was a man from another world. I didn't know it at the time. Very friendly fellow.
1: And he and I became friends. And so for the next five years, I would have multiple occasions to sit and speak with him, meet up with him, learn from him and the others who came with him. At one point, there were some rather traumatic things going on <sighs> with uh, my stepdad
2: and mother. He was beating her. I couldn't stand it, and I left. I just ran out the woods. It was getting dark. I didn't want to get beat again. It was a common thing. Fortunately. Sorry. So, I was calling out to Zoe, and he showed up very quickly. And he said that if I needed to, if I wanted to, that I could come with him. And he told me at the time
1: that these are not really your parents. You were adopted. And you're free to make a decision. If you want to come back home with us, or if if you decide to stay, but we feel it's better if you come home with us. Well, hearing the word adopted, that was something I'd heard before, and I had no idea the depth of emotional uh, angst that would cause within me to hear. I knew other kids were adopted, and they didn't seem to be very happy about it. They were unwanted. They always said that someone
2: else had to want them because they weren't good enough for their mother. So that carried quite a resonance within me. I went back home.
1: <clears throat> I asked her about this. She'd always, she continued to forbid me to speak to Zoe or anybody that was a stranger. And I tried to explain to her that they were my friends. They were good people. So I asked her, am I adopted? And her face went pale, I remember very clearly. And she went to this little metal box that she kept in a closet. She pulled it out, opened it pulled out my birth certificate she said this is your birth certificate this proves that you're not adopted you're my son don't let anyone tell you differently <clears throat> that resolved my angst
2: <laughs> From that point forward then i knew that
1: this really was my mother i don't know what those other memories were they're quite real but this was indeed my mother so it would not be until many years later when she died and prior to her death that so would show up and advise me that i was about to discover the truth of my identity of my person and that i would do so as a result of my mother dying and that she was going to die in december and he wanted to make sure that I wasn't emotionally damaged by the news that was going to surface.
2: Well, I assured him I didn't think it would make any difference. I was 38 years old at the time.
1: said, you know, if that's the case, that's the case. I had not been in touch with her for a number of years. I didn't know at the time that she had, Developed uh, a, a deep state
2: of dementia and she wasn't talked to and wouldn't talk
1: to anybody. So there's no point in trying. And she was, for many years before that, actually very distant and non interested in me. So why would I care at
2: this point? Couldn't understand why, but you know, that's life, I suppose. I would tell myself. So,
1: um, when she died, it was in December, the date that Zoe had told me.
2: And um, it was a couple days after her death that I got a phone call from my sister who had
1: She's a little sneaky. She always was, you know, rebel. And she told me she had listened in on these men that were at the funeral, wanting to know if I had ever been told I was adopted. And Elmer, which was my, you know, the male version of the evil stepmother, um, he said no and that the mother didn't want it that way
2: did never want me to know and the other man was like well he needs to know everything as well it's not up to me and i don't really give a damn and walked away so
1: when Zo had told me that I was adopted, he told me the entire story. But now I had this validation,
2: having her, having my sister, overhear this conversation, and then it all came rushing back to me. When I was younger, and they told me that I was adopted, I could leave. You know, the mother protecting herself and say, "No, you're not." adopted. And
1: then Zoe telling me, once again, yes, you are adopted, and we're worried about your state of mental health, your emotional state. Well, now I'm hearing it, and it's conclusive.
2: It was not troubling.
1: It was actually very freeing. Because at that moment, I realized that the differences that there were about me that were so vast between myself and them and everyone around me was now in some way qualified. Now I had some tangible idea why I wasn't like everyone else. And it was freeing. Because I no longer had to feel that I was connected to a genetic lineage that was defective. Because it was. They were a family of ill people
2: and drunks, mentally not 100% there.
1: I had to dumb down my ability to communicate in order to communicate with them. Language was one of my strong points.
2: So then what do you do with information like this? I tried telling a few people. Eyes rolled. And I gave up. And it wasn't until one evening
1: in New York when I was at a place, had been there for a few weeks, working as a healer, working with people who were needing help with whatever was troubling them. And there were psychics there, very, very powerful psychics, people I had deep respect for. I was really astonished by the quality of who they were. I I had seen what
2: they could do. Well, they knew my story before I told them. They asked me if I would fill in the blanks, and I did. They said, You need to tell the world who you are, that you're here. And I said, Oh, sure. Like that's going to go over like a lead balloon. Hmm.
1: So they convinced me I should. So I hooked up my computer, set up the necessary pieces of equipment, tied into a very good, uh, internet connection and i told the lady of this place to let it be known i was going to make a revelation it was going to be at eight o'clock at night the room would only hold 50 people but there were 300 people who showed up she was afraid the fire marshal was going to shut them down some people were outside Windows were open so they could peer inside or hear speakers were set up so they could listen.
2: And I told my story to them pretty much as I've told it to you. And it was seen by tens of thousands of people.
1: And I expected a great deal of blowback. I thought, I'm going to get a lot of hate mail. A lot of people saying, you know, I'm nuts. But instead, what happened? There wasn't one piece of correspondence that was negative, And there were thousands and thousands and thousands of emails and letters sent. Sent to this house. and Lots and lots. And not a one of them was negative in its connotation. Not one. They were all supportive. And the ones that really stood out in my mind is, are the ones that said, I'm not from here myself. And I've been afraid mm-hmm. to say that I am from elsewhere.
2: And you've given me the strength to be able to stand up and say, this is true about me as well. Wonderful. And so that's
1: pretty much the story in a nutshell. As far as why I'm here, my initial thoughts on that are I was here to watch. There are a great many things that have taken place and a great many things left to take place on this world. Perhaps some part of me is an anthropologist studying the culture to see how it maneuvers through these troubling times. Part of me might be a philosopher to gain some deeper sense of wisdom by watching the foibles of those who try to navigate the troubling waters of this world. Part of me is a scientist looking for a solution to a number of things.
2: I don't know. I think the undercurrents
1: of why I'm here would have to do with trying to help give others an idea that there's a much better way than the ways that we've done things in the past.
2: It's time to be here without fear, to
1: be here with our own strength intact, knowing with confidence who we are and the reason why we've came, why we've come, rather. Mm Another reason? Just to make a difference. You don't make a difference in the world, typically, on a grand scale. A lot of people think in terms of the grandiose, and I don't see that as being how this is actually going to manifest. The differences that I've made in people's lives have been one person at a time to do something that showed them that they were important, they were valuable, they mattered to me. Not that I'm important, but so many people in the world feel alone. And if only one person would care, it would make a difference in their life.
2: And I try to do that.
1: So I think if there were millions of us who are here who tried to do this, then there would be multiple millions who would benefit from just an act of kindness, an act of conscience. Yeah. We all came here with our own
2: unique gifts. I came here with a multiplicity of gifts. I focused on the healing aspect. Others, they're quite good at whatever they do.
1: We need each other. We're not alone. And we cannot do anything in a positive way, in a way that brings benefit, if we try to do it by ourselves. It's not how it's done out there among the stars. And that can't be the way it's done here.
2: Yeah. So that's why I think I'm here. That's so beautiful. I did not want to say one word while you were
0: gifting us that. Thank you so much much it is incredibly transfixing your voice your resonance your frequency that you emit the the gigantic love um, that just comes from you is so beautiful I'm so proud to be sitting here with you I'm so proud to share you on my beautiful channel with the many people that will see you and um, I'd like to go back a few steps to the beginning to ask you when you were that beautiful little newborn soul And you were being held by what you perceived to be your mother on a ship and a masculine being you assume as your father do you remember what they looked like physically and if and what they resonated
1: they looked like people here
2: they just looked like people and were you a blonde-haired blue-eyed when you came
1: well, when you grew into yeah. yourself? Well,
2: when I... Up to about three years old,
1: I had a golden color hair that was basically uh, pretty curly, I'm told. I've seen pictures. It's kind of hard to imagine me looking like that the way I look now. I look old. But it was... Um,
2: it was like, you know, past my shoulders, um, like a girl almost,
1: but you could, I guess, somehow tell it was a more of a masculine look than a feminine look, I don't know. But <clears throat> that's, that's what it looked like. I had um, this golden
2: curly hair. How lovely. How beautiful. Um, Can you tell us, do
0: you know, what was the first military base you were dropped off at, and do you know the military base you were then taken to?
1: The first place, and I'm only guessing because I really, I can't say with any certainty, because I didn't have any foreknowledge. But in looking at pictures, The best that I can guess is that the first place in the desert that I was looked at by these men, three of them, who were in military uniforms. I know there were other men standing around who didn't have all the decorations on, on their shirt. I don't know who these men were. The man who came down and got close and smiled and put his finger across my face like that. It could have been Eisenhower. I've seen his picture, and, and his the face was always in my mind. So it could have been him, but I don't know. I really don't know. And the first place was the desert. The second place... It was Fort Knox. I'm certain of that. Because my mother lived in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. And my earth father was some kind of a soldier there. I don't know what he did, what his rank was, or anything. She was incapable of having children. And I think that's the reason why um, they chose this couple. Oh, they were married and couldn't have children. And so here, have a
2: child. Mm. Mm -hmm.
1: I can't really speak to the specifics on that. I have no real idea at all.
0: Right. You said briefly that you remember being
2: stuck with a pen from a diver. What did you mean by that?
1: I wasn't stuck with a pen ever.
2: Okay, I made a note of it because it sounded like that's what you said. You remember being
0: stuck by a pen by a diver. Well, okay, I wrote that down. So (laughs) if you said it or not, it's on my notes here. Okay, we'll move. I may.
1: I can tell you is when I was swinging my arms around, uh, my father had a fish knife, meaning fish like a stiletto kind of blade. And I was being goofy, swinging my arms around. And he walked up and I swung around and the knife went in this side, came out to that side. And when I saw it, I was like, oh, I pulled my hand away just as quickly. And that's when he picked me up and walked over to my mother and set me down, got down on his knees and examined my hand with her. They were both freaked out, but there wasn't any, any evidence anything like that had happened at all.
0: And so no blood, incident,
2: blood.
0: No blood. That's incredible.
1: I have the no Mas- idea what's happened there.
0: Right. The Masonic Order. Do you know what this Masonic Lodge is or was? And what
2: color was it? Was it the Blue Lodge? River? I don't know. I really haven't a clue. I don't know one lodge from
1: another, and nothing's really is, you know, in my mind about anything like that. Where it was, it was somewhere downtown in Denver, Colorado, but I don't know where it was at.
0: When you went into the elevator, do you remember how long it took to get down to the underground room or grand chamber?
1: It didn't take very long. It was like a normal elevator ride. It wasn't as long as some. So maybe it's only three or four floors, perhaps.
2: Okay. How old were you?
1: I don't remember. Five or six years old. That happened.
0: Was a little babe. Do you know why they dressed you in a silver Velcro tight suit? Do they want to present you like a space child?
1: I don't know where would they get such a thing as this anyway. It was um, it wasn't plastic, uh, and it was baggy until you put it on, and then it just sort of fit right to you. And it wasn't like bright silver, like aluminum foil. It was <clears throat> it was a little more dull than that, and yeah, maybe like the backside of shiny aluminum foil, perhaps. Um, it was very comfortable, stretchy. You know, didn't bind, as I remember. It wasn't uncomfortable, but I couldn't keep it. I wanted
2: right. to. Oh, bless you, bless you. It must have felt amazing as
0: a little tiny child to be in this situation, in this huge room, and when you were given the piece of paper, do you remember re- recognizing any of the words, the letters that you read? Were you able to read in English? Was it Latin? Do you remember
2: anything like that?
1: It seems to me that it was
2: Latin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I don't know Latin,
1: but I had to practice the words. And I knew how to read and, and was functionally literate with
2: reading. Um, I was reading, you know, third grade level, perhaps fourth grade
1: level. um, With the books that I had, I I read those out loud. And my father specifically wanted me to be able to read out loud because he said there'll come a time one day when you'll need to have the ability to speak to people i said why and he says because you have something to tell them so now read this out loud and be very careful how you pronounce every word so i did and then this time came up when i was reading these other words which i didn't really know what they even meant but he helped me with pronunciation um the other man was there. He didn't help with that. But my father helped me with the pronunciation of these words. There was a little bit different intonation with some of them. So I just, it wasn't like, you know, 100 words. It was maybe 15 words, maybe 20 words tops that I had to read. And they were hoping that I would memorize it and be able to do it that way. And I pretty much had it memorized, but because I was unfamiliar with this language that these words were written in, I just just kept a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. When the people lined up and they shook your hand and they touched your head and they rubbed your shoulder,
2: what did you feel they might be doing? Admiring me
1: being friendly to a kid.
2: A special child
0: in a very important ceremony.
1: Well, I didn't really see it as being that. I thought I was doing something for my, my dad. It was special to him. So I was trying to do a good thing because it was important to him. So I would do this, and then he'd be happy with me. And he said he was very proud of me. So. I I felt that I'd accomplished that.
0: Ah, ah, and you got chocolate cake at home after that. must have been a lovely
1: treat. Well, I had pancakes after that. And then later that night before bed, chocolate cake and a big glass of milk.
0: I love it. I love it. Let me see. When you did your travels into the Florida Everglades and you went deep into the jungle and met the man who was obviously guarding an opening to a a secret place, you said that you were given a stick of Juicy Fruit gum each time that you went there, and then you would wake up. Is it logical to say that this gum actually put you to sleep?
1: That's how I feel about it at this point, because I can't explain why I would be chewing this gum and then the next thing I know, I'm waking up back at the hotel I, because I was walking with these weird looking guys in these suits <clears throat> and the fellow that gave me the gum, he was standing back there now. I'm walking away from him, walking towards this building with these, I don't know, these doors were kind of weird. It's not like doors you open and you have to push them apart and walk in and push them apart and walk in. So I saw them when I came out. But I don't ever remember going in there.
2: I just remember they had me, you know,
1: I, I had my hand in this glove and walking. And the next thing you know, I'm I'm waking up back in the hotel. I don't know what happened. I don't have any idea what happened.
0: Mm-hmm. It's,
1: it's been a bit-
0: have you ever have happened- any...
2: Sorry, go ahead.
0: Sorry. Um, Did you ever have any marks, any bruises? Did you ever have any dreams around these times that you can remember specifically?
1: Nothing at all like that. My guess is that they were giving me a yearly checkup with whoever it was that they were. You know, it could have been that they were just military scientists. It could have been off-worlders, just giving my yearly checkup no idea. There was no clue. And I really couldn't see these men's faces clearly at all inside of these big hood things. So now I don't know anything about who they were or what it was all about.
2: Did you ever feel frightened when you were taken to these places?
1: No, it was a big adventure. I was watching for monkeys and alligators and snakes. You know, That's what uncle Sam said was out there. <clears throat> you just keep looking? There's monkeys out there. You just keep looking. It's just like Tarzan, you know? You know, the, the I never saw anything like that. I saw birds and heard frogs, saw frogs. Never saw any alligators. Never saw any snakes. But my Uncle Sam said they were out there. And I had to stay in the boat. Even if they stopped the boat for a minute can't get out if you have to use the bathroom stand up go to that side of the boat you know that kind of specificity
2: yeah but i don't remember ever doing that anyway go ahead do you remember whereabouts in florida that was specifically
1: no i've been to florida a few times trying to figure it out
2: Mm.
1: and i've not a
2: clue I just know it it took a while to get there. It wasn't a fast trip from where we were. Um, I remember the town. We were on the eastern coast of Florida.
1: I can't even think of the name of the town at the moment, but uh, it's a rather popular spot. People drive on the beach and...
2: Anyway, from there, just drove and drove and drove quite a while. Does Daytona Beach sound
0: familiar? Daytona Beach?
2: I think that was a, I'm pretty sure it's right in that vicinity. Um,
1: Daytona Beach. That's probably it, because I did go back to Daytona Beach, because I, I had a an old picture of the hotel. I don't even know where that's at now. Uh, me and my mom at the beach and a hotel. hotel's not the same name, so I looked it up. And now it's
2: condos, I think. Yeah, but, there's yeah, a lot
1: of...
2: I went looking... Yeah. It's amazing. A lot of activity in that area.
0: Um, can we talk about Zoe? When, when you met your Zoe, your friend, your godsend
2: friend, um, what did he look like and how tall was he? Well, he was taller than
1: I was at the time. And I'm guessing, well, I know for sure he's more than six foot tall. He's over that. What
2: did he look like? Um,
1: now I would say he had fine features, uh, perhaps, uh, S- Slavic features, perhaps. Uh, he had, uh, it wasn't just straight hair, it would, but it was long. Uh, it was kind of a, a honey color. Um, he had a one piece outfit on, which is really what caused me to wonder what the hell's wrong with this guy. Because I was in cutoffs and, you know, no t shirt. It yeah. uh, just, was just hotter to Dickens down in there in the, the forest. This is in the middle of summer, hot, steamy. <clears throat> and this fellow comes walking up with his one piece outfit on that once again referring to it as a one piece lycra suit perhaps went right to his wrists um he couldn't tell that it was shirt and pants it's like all the same thing but he had like a cinch in the front and where excuse me where he should have on you know boots and socks no it just continued on down into his footwear
2: it's just all one piece the other
0: men or the other beings that you saw, what did they look like? Do you feel they were all from the same kind of race?
1: Well, you said they were all from the same place. And they all had um, similar characteristics, although they weren't carbon copies
2: of each other. You know, it's they had their
1: differences. Some were a little shorter some were a little rounder and a couple were a little older and the women,
2: you know, they were very pretty. Um, Didn't see much in the way of women though. Once in a while, there's this one woman who was an astrophysicist and, you know, I could pick her brain a little bit, but,
1: um, you know, we didn't spend a lot of time talking. You know, the information that was provided to me was done in a way that is what you might consider as thought transference or knowledge transference. You know, it's, it's taken us a reasonable amount of time to have this discussion. But with the transference uh, of thought, the entire thing could be done in just minutes and you'd have more context than what you've already got because you'd also have the emotional and any in-depth to any of the details because it's all there it's all part of the original uh state of memory and that's how they they taught me a great many things and i used that knowledge
2: eventually and um
1: I should have been a multimillionaire by now. but
0: uh, I I giggled there. I mean, really, it's inappropriate to laugh. but I mean, you're so humorous about it. But actually, you've invented, created so many incredible technologies on our planet that was supposed to be for humanity, but it was taken from you, used by others. Are you happy to talk about that a little bit?
1: I can approach it. it. It isn't a sore spot with me at all. Because ultimately, it did do something that benefited people, and that was the main goal: was to do something to help others. You know, in, in my life, I've never had this desire to be well-known or to be rich, um, or to have that kind of
2: power that comes with incredible wealth. It all seems like foolishness to me but there are things that i've created that um you know have done some good
1: but i don't have my name on the patents i don't have any way of validating what i would say because these companies that i've worked for or in the case of you know the government it belongs to them or the company that you're working for who is contracted through the government, it belongs to that company. And names on patents are usually reserved for those circumstance that hold the power, uh, that hold the um, responsibility. And so those names are put
2: on to those patents. Not mine. And as we've heard over the years, there are certain personnel who have uh,
0: received massive awards, global awards, Nobel awards, etc., etc., for work they have not done. Reminds me of Darwin, people that worked with him, and yet he ended up taking the biggest accolade. And Wallace Arnold, or Arnold Wallace, one of his students who spent many years in the Galapagos Islands, did so much of the work there in terms of survival of the fittest. It's happened over and over again. Uh, sadly, and I look, I look forward to the day when everybody um, is uh, noted for their their um, beautiful service to humanity in many ways. I want to step back a little bit. You mentioned uh, Eisenhower, um, and it's interesting because at the beginning of your delivery, your beautiful experiences that you're sharing with us, you mentioned a man that came over, looked fairly stern, he was wearing a suit, and he just touched your face in this way and looked down at you, and you said you think that may have potential.
1: It was, it was on the side like this. Aww. actually But I'm sorry, go ahead.
0: No, oh, please, because I need to put us both on screen together here because I don't want the audience to have missed that. So you went like this. He touched you like yes. this.
1: Yes. Started right about here. I just went down my cheek, just like that with one finger.
0: It's interesting how much of an impression that made on you. You're a newborn child. That made an impression. It's-
1: this man was scary, and when he did that,
2: he was no longer frightening; he was kind, and I could feel I could feel him. And I can't explain you know in,
1: in reasonable terms, but when he did that, there was something that registered in me as kindness, and so if the person is kind, there's no need to fear them, but I was apprehensive.
2: At that time
0: in his administration we've come to understand the man Val Thor Some call him Valiant Thor. You and I were speaking off camera about this in my own personal thoughts on Val Thor. Um, And we are told that, well, we're not just told, it's in the records. I mean, some have been redacted. The government has tried to redact as much as possible. But Val Thor, who was a person, physical person, who came from Venus to our planet to work with the American government, nobody can deny that. It's fact there's even photographs of him and he was at the time with uh, Dwight Eisenhower, we know at the same time historically uh, Nordics and Greys uh, came to work uh, to do different dealings and there's been a lot of uh, lies, uh, deliberate distortion of our history, our global history, um, and it's coming back to be reconsidered at this point in many different ways. So, I'll leave that bit there unless you wish to add anything. But did you ever meet Val Thor? Or did you ever go with your dad? Because you said he had a government position. Did you ever go into the White House, the Pentagon with your father, or any of the military that took care of you?
1: No, I never went to any of those places. You know, I've seen images of Val Thor, and it looks familiar, but I can't really place details with the memories of why it would look familiar it just looks familiar and that's all i I really don't know why it looks familiar it just does Mm -hmm. you know there are probably hundreds or more of instances where there were people who were ushered in and out because where we lived there were people who would show up quite frequently um i thought my Father must be a very important man to have these distinguished guests show up and sit down and drink out of little glasses with brown liquid that I was forbidden to taste or touch. Mm -hmm. But they seemed to really appreciate that. Sometimes they brought it with them. And it happened with some frequency. So, I don't know if he showed up. Maybe that's somewhere buried in my memories. Because let's face it, you know, I was, let's say, five years old. That was 65 years ago. And since that time, so many things have happened. Even in the past 20 years, so many things have happened. Chased by terrorists, death squad coming for us. You know, a number of things. Discovering lost cities, discovering
2: lost information. So many things
1: have happened. And, you know, at five, six years old, a number of things happened then as well, but I don't recall the specifics of them at all.
2: As we all know, even those that have
0: come from other places to be on this planet right now to witness the ascension and the evolving of consciousness, which is happening, that children like you came and you were integrated into society. There were also adults that came fully grown, to do the same. Um, And so we're discovering more and more, but I know that all of us don't always have every single memory all of the time because we're on our own journey, which I believe that to be part of the mission. I want to ask you about school. As a little guy who was clearly so bright, so clever, so easily um, absorbing the information, how did school feel to you? And were you able to connect easily with other children?
1: I didn't connect very easily with anyone. School was terminally boring. When I was in the second grade, My teacher called me her little Einstein, her little scientist. Her name was Miss Scott. And in the second grade, I had, for the second time, read a book called Einstein's Special Theory of Relativity. So that's the kind of books I was reading in the second grade. Um, But I had to learn the most arcane things things I already knew, things that just, and it was just, you know, I I really admired the uh, concept of recording history, but history is written by the
2: conquerors. They didn't really want you to know the truth. They wanted you to know what they wanted you to know. that truth. Their
1: truth, which isn't truth. Right. Their version of history and what actually happened are two separate things. And I knew this very early on. I did appreciate mathematics. I did appreciate learning how to use words and the structure of sentences and learning new words being exposed to new books to read. Mm. I really appreciated the aspects of science. It's not that I knew everything at all, which I didn't, but there were certain areas I was very keen on to know more about. By the time I was in the seventh grade, I was, well, I was doing all right in school, nothing very flashy, barely passing grades, because it was just, as I said, quite boring. In the eighth grade, however, the math teacher
2: was on sabbatical and my mind had grown exponentially. And the new
1: substitute teacher was a professor in mathematics. And so I wanted to know more and more and more than she was teaching
2: She decided she would teach me,
1: and it was by the time I was at the end of the year in the eighth grade that I was doing uh, second-year college-level mathematics and geometry and
2: trigonometry. I was doing all that, and I was doing it well, and she was preparing me for third-year trigonometric functions. And I was doing quite well in third year. But
1: then it was the end of the year. I didn't have a teacher. And I figured when I go from eighth grade to ninth grade, which was now considered high school, that I could just pick it right back up and go even farther. Well,
2: that didn't work out so well. Because the teacher, and I signed up for algebra. Well, I'd already been doing
1: high algebra for quite a while at that point but now instead of taking it from where i had left off i had to stop doing that and in algebra when they're teaching you they teach you how to take a function and take it expand it out over maybe a whole page to show the expression of the function that expression of the function was already happening in my mind i'd gone far beyond that i was working on g uh, Uh, geometry and trigonometry and all this stuff. I could see it floating in the air in front of me. I could figure out all these details. I knew the formulas. And I refused to
2: do things the way he wanted me to. I told him, I'm not doing that. I'm too far beyond this. And so, because I refused, he wrote in yellow chalk. He took the eraser, erased the board, and threw it at me and hit me directly between the legs with a chalk
1: eraser, which was horribly embarrassing. And he threw me out of his class. In order to go any farther, I'd have to take basic math. So I did. I had to dumb myself down to be in their presence.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. I resented that for quite some time. I'm still unhappy about it. But it
2: is what it is. There's a valuable lesson to be learned. Nobody cares what you know. They just care
1: that you know what they want you to know. That was what the takeaway was for me on that. Same was true with many of the other classes. Physics too simple. By the time I was in the ninth year of school as a freshman, my mind had become really like a photographic memory. I could read anything and remember it, so I read all the works of Shakespeare and philosophy and,
2: gosh, I mean, so many things I read. So, uh, read everything by Freud and Jung. And so it, it was really kind of fun. I didn't need to have a book. I just took all the tests and uh, just had it prepared. Well, anyway,
1: I don't even know where I'm going with that. Just walking down memory lane, I suppose, high school years. Oh. But there weren't any, any friends, really. There were two or three people that I communicated with. They had me playing basketball from the very get-go, ninth grade. I'd never played basketball. So they uh, helped me to develop my body to the same extent that my mind was. And I was okay at it, I suppose. By this
2: time, I was uh, six six, I think. And uh, it was
1: odd the way they approached things because the opposing team, they were the enemy. And we were required to not like them, not talk to them, not be pleasant at all in any respect where they were concerned. And if you beat them, you laugh at them because you beat them. And I thought, that's rude. And
2: it's, this is a game. You should go over and compliment
1: them for how well they did. And perhaps next time, we've inspired you to do better so you can beat us next time. But no, nothing like that. It was rivalry. Very primitive. So I really didn't put very much heart or effort into playing basketball. Uh because I didn't really agree with the philosophies
2: that they were functioning with them. I
1: was fast, strong, but I didn't care for their philosophy at all.
0: Right. One of the most obvious questions one would assume, because, you know, there's thousands of people that are watching this that will see this, and everybody becomes their own, like, you know, interviewer, and they're asking this and asking that. One of the most obvious questions to ask you would be, uh, and I know the answer because we've spoken previously, but do you know where you are
2: from? Star system, planet in particular, race of beings?
1: Well, I used to think that I was quite sure where I'm from. The planet is called Lanulos.
2: Um, and as I understand it, From what I remember being told, it is um, around a star called Tau Ceti. I'm no astronomer,
1: but I do have friends who are. And it's been mentioned that um, they might have found planets around that star that are considered habitable planets similar in size to earth i think but that's what i was told by so so there's no way that i can qualify that except this is what i was told until i have reason to consider something different then i'll probably just continue thinking in terms of that being the place
2: amazing
0: amazing amazing um can i ask you as you've realized from a very young little boy that you have special gifts, spiritual gifts, etc., as your parents have gone to the next realm, your biological adoptive parents, the original mum and dad, um, oh. have, you had, have you had contact with your dad? I know he tried to call, communicate, but have you had other contact with your father and your mother?
2: No, nothing at all like that. And I don't know that there's really any reason to. There's um, such a span of time
1: between now and when he passed away. And the distance that evolved between the adoptive mother and
2: myself, there's no real desire to go
1: and go looking for that. Are there other. People in my life that were much more important to me at this point that I have sought out,
2: found. And so, you know, I have. But, you know, that's a realm that I really don't travel into
1: uh, unless there's an absolute need to. And if there is an absolute need from their perspective, They'll reach out to me, which some have, and we've had those conversations.
2: Mm. Have you reconnected with your birth parents
0: from the Tau Seti region that brought you here on the ship that you clearly
2: remember?
1: Not that I'm aware of. If I have, I wasn't.
2: Um, I wasn't aware of it at all. This has been so great. I could just keep going
0: for hours. I think it would be kinder to stop at this stage and come back again another time. And of course, you're speaking at our conference in just three weeks time, the Galactic Spiritual Informers Connection. You've gifted gifted us so much, Jerry, uh, so much to ponder and think about. And to me, these conversations are so crucial, especially right now. Because as you deliver into the field, your memories, your experiences that you know are real out there, others, as you said, the thousands that came to see you, there was a room that was going to hold 50 and there were 300 people scrambling to get in to listen to you because something sparked, something happened in them that drew them to hear the information and it went out and out. Thousands saw you on television. Um, And your gift, Doing this with me, which I'm so grateful for, will have the same similar effect. More people now, as we know, are waking up to who they be, who they were, where they're from, past lives, current lives, etc. Is there anything that you would like to say specifically to the people
2: that are watching right now?
1: There is one thing I think would be poignant. Uh, So many people are wondering where they come from and do I know? course, I don't have any idea. And it's important for you to try to find that answer for yourself because it's a point of inquiry you'd like to know. But there's another thing to be very, very aware of that is probably even more important than where you came from. You suspect you came from someplace else, and chances are you did one way or another. The important thing for you to consider. It's not where you came from, but who are you now, and what are you doing, and who are you doing it for? If you truly are from some other place, it's time for you to be the truest version of you. Be you, and if you don't know what that means, find out. No one can tell you if they say they can. It's just a big story. Don't believe it. Find out who you are. Be the authentic version of you, whatever it is. And don't be afraid to be it. The things that are coming, the things that are ahead for us, require you to have confidence in who you are. And if you're not confident in who you are, then how can you expect anyone around you to have confidence
2: that they're going to be all right? You won't even be all right. Who are you? And what are you doing with who you are? That's my message to you.
1: I hope that is good enough.
2: That is
0: outstanding and excellent in its delivery and very much appreciated. Um, Thank you so much, Jerry. Truly, thank you. And dear Kathy there, Um, thank you so much. I can't wait to connect back with you again soon and especially see you on Zoom at the conference, which will give details underneath everyone. And uh, thank you so much. And to the audience out there, bless you, love you, sending you love from my heart to yours. I know you're going to be so delighted to have gotten to spend time with this great man and listen to his stories and find within yourself a resonance, a story,
2: a a memory, uh, or not. But bless you. My name is Danny Henderson, and I'll see you soon.